0: Gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Daniel
1: it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is The Remnant, brought to you by The Dispatch, Dispatch Media. Uh, go to thedispatch.com to find out all the stuff um, that you need to know for the day, for the, for the week, for the year, for the millennia. Um, We are very excited to have a, uh, return guest, friend of the dispatch, uh, servant of the masses, uh, very few guests are requested as often as he is, particularly by the guests themselves. Um, and he has a propitiously well-timed book out, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. He's our friend, our raconteur, his recovering, our recovering Canadian, Ilya Shapiro. Um, oh, and I should say before we get to all of that, again, brain not working right. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by our friends at the Bradley Foundation Speaker Series and at Lucy Nicotine Gum. Uh, more about them in a little bit. Ilya Shapiro. Welcome back to the Remnant. Good to have you back.
0: It, it's good to be back. It took a while to get to number four, but I'm I'm heading straight for number five in that velvet jacket.
1: Uh, no, it's and you know I don't know if we told you, but we've we've upped the swag for repeat guests. When um, you're a ten timer, which no one has done yet, you actually get one of those miniature giraffes from that uh, commercial with the Russian oligarch. It's really kind of cool. It's like it's like one foot tall. It's very cool. Um, i have no idea what you're talking about well that's like that's a new sensation for you um (laughs) (laughs) so you picked a uh like Maisie hirono at a senate judiciary committee meeting we will get to Maisie hirono um uh what uh you picked a very good time most people i know in the last few years they come out with books at exactly the wrong time um it is a feature of things um uh, but you managed to come out with a book uh, again, Supreme Disorder, uh, judicial nominations, and the politics of America's highest court, uh, right in the middle of a third uh, confirmation thing. So let's let's just do some level setting. Yeah, the, uh, the
0: publisher had to uh, pay extra for that, uh, putting together ninety thousand words in the four days uh, between <laughs> RBG's death and the book publication.
1: Yeah, well, you're not so much a writer as a typer, so it's, it's you know it worked out. Um, let's just sort of do some level setting. How do you think it's going? Uh, how do you, what are your big takeaways? Um, we will get to all of the grosser legal punditry in a second, but just, you know, we are recording this very early in the morning on Thursday morning. I think Amy Coney Barrett is now done testifying.
0: Uh,
1: how do you think it went? What were the highlights or lowlights?
0: Well, I, I watched the thing so you didn't have to. It was uh, painful, typically. Uh, I didn't learn anything. Uh, I don't think anyone who uh, read any of her past work uh, learned anything. But if you, if you skip that homework and, and wanted just to tune into hours of senatorial bloviation, then, uh, you know, then you, maybe you learned something. But this was Kabuki Theater. Um, I mean, I, I had an op-ed in the USA Today this week. Uh, saying, end confirmation hearings. Uh, I think they do more harm to our public discourse than any benefit. And as I said, if you want to learn about uh, the nominee, you can read all about that on the interwebs and uh, the senators can debate and they can call witnesses pro and con, that sort of thing, or even hold closed sessions as they did briefly uh, last night to discuss the FBI background check and other sensitive matters. Uh, But this public spectacle, um, you know, it served its purpose for a time. uh, But but now, you know, I, I don't I don't really see uh, what it adds, particularly uh, at this uh, juncture right before the election where everybody's going to be voting essentially on uh, on, on process arguments uh, even more than uh, the divergent judicial philosophies.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, look, I mean, it, I'd be curious to know, I mean, perhaps you would hold a consistent line, but I, I would suspect that many a conservative eager to derail a liberal appointee would say what you're saying right now and then <laughs> come... because and then come a democratic president saying, Oh, it must have confirmation hearings. We have to have a full airing. You know, there is this, this just ridiculous seesawing of, of people embracing the other side's arguments in all of these things. But on the, on the substantive point, it seems to me, like I was against doing this rushed thing and all the rest, but it turns out I was kind of wrong, you know, in the sense that, um, if there's no time to have a full hearing you would think they would do the substantive they would front load the substantive stuff and yet it turned out there was no substantive stuff it was just kabuki <laughs> you're right it was just kabuki theater and if it's just kabuki theater then the idea that we're rushing through this isn't true right i mean it's like if if i don't know if you if if you had to rush a surgery you would do the important surgery stuff first <laughs> right you know and yet there was not there was almost no May, you watch more of it than I did, but I thought a couple exchanges with Klobuchar were politically interesting and all that. But uh, uh, on the whole, I, it was pointless, uh,
0: except maybe for
1: civics reasons of some kind or another.
0: Yeah, I, I, I guess. Uh, like I said, if 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 you tuned in not knowing anything about the nominee or or what the issues were, what have you, uh, m- maybe you could have learned something. Uh, and uh, it does provide an opportunity for the nominee to present him or herself. So, you know, introduce yourself to the country, as it were, to all of those C-SPAN viewers and and what have you. And apparently her ratings, as it were, among the American people have improved as they got to know her, which is understandable. She's gracious and nice and poised and uh, on top of being very smart and being able to uh, take these complex uh, uh, legal doctrines and, uh, as my judge would say, uh, chew them up so the little goats can eat them. Uh, so she did herself uh, definite favors there. This was no Robert Bork uh, kind of shooting herself in the foot um, during an already difficult process. But look, this hearing went the same way that the hearings for uh, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh setting aside the protesters and the and the secondary, uh, you know, 11th hour allegations or Alito, Roberts, Kagan, Sotomayor, all of these things. They're all everybody is playing from the same from the same playbook. The uh, nominee talks a lot without saying much. The uh, party uh, the the senators from the party of the president toss softballs and make the nominee look human and nice and smart. The opposition senators ask gotcha questions and don't get any answers to them, but get video for their campaign ads. Um, I mean, it's not that it was rushed or not rushed. This hearing, you couldn't tell that really that it was you know so close to an election in this unusual circumstance. It it the the, the substantive aspect of it uh, went the same as uh, all others.
1: Um. All right, so let's just clear some low-hanging brush here. Um the 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 central political agenda of the Democrats in this whole thing was to you know, as I was saying on the Dispatch podcast yesterday, they might as well have just started playing the Sarah McLachlan music as they showed small children locked in kennels begging for uh, I will for remember help. you. Yeah, I mean it was it was unbelievable um but it was all hinged to hinge to this claim that she could be the deciding vote to get rid of Obamacare in this upcoming court case. Every conservative legal analyst I've read says that's all nonsense, And I think the liberal legal analysts agree with it because they're just not writing about it because they don't want to have to admit it's nonsense. But what's your take on the, the legal argument embedded in this claim that she is being appointed to get rid of Obamacare? in general but also related to this case that's coming up
0: yeah she's not the deciding vote on this one way or another because there uh, there aren't a four i don't think there's even one vote uh on the court to uh, strike down all of obamacare this is a different case than uh, what we had eight years ago when John Roberts famously uh, reconstrued the individual mandate into a tax in, o- in order to uphold it, that argument uh, is is no longer, that saving construction, as lawyers call it, is no longer available because Congress zeroed out the tax penalty rutabaga unicorn um, that that John Roberts found. And so there's no more revenue raising. There's no more taxing power justification, which means the mandate itself, which again currently has a $0 enforcement attached to it. Uh, is unconstitutional. But the question is, as keep, kept coming up during the hearing, severability, which is a fancy word for uh, if this uh, constitutionally defective part falls, uh, can it be uh, cut out of the rest of the law or how much of the rest of the law has to fall with it? Uh, and the answer is uh, not very much at all for all sorts of prudential reasons that judges look at. What would Congress have passed? Well, they don't have to look very far because Congress, when it zeroed out that tax penalty thing, Uh, didn't cut uh, much of the rest. So again, a different question than it was. And so uh, she is not, uh, this is not going to fall. And by the way, it was the Democrats uh, in in California and the blue states who are uh, leading the charge in defending uh, Obamacare that fast-tracked the case to the Supreme Court. So this is not some plot by the administration, although it did file briefs uh, supporting the challengers and and saying Obamacare, the Linda Est, should uh, should be destroyed. Uh, the timing of all of this and the appointment and of all that, whatever Trump says, that's uh, not the reality on the ground.
1: So just for a clarification of some listeners, earlier when you blurted out rutabaga, unicorn, um, what you were doing was not using a sort of a hidden code like in the movie *Telephone*, where Robert Bronson, or where, where, um, Bronson says, reads stopping by woods on a snowy evening you were, um, making some sort of oblique legal reference to the, uh, tax. I, I was, that?
0: I was making fun of John Roberts's, uh, legal so-called analysis in that case in, in calling the, the mandate penalty, uh, uh, a, a tax, um, at the time, you know, I'm, I'm still sore about that. I still, I'm still not over that, that decision, I was in the courtroom when it was announced and the, the scales fell from my eyes my man crush on John Roberts' baby blues uh you know dissipated and uh um and it's 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 just legally um unjustifiable and it, basically the idea is uh it's it's a sort of tax that he invented that itself has no constitutional justification and will never be seen again for all sorts of reasons that that we don't need to rehash but uh yeah it was it, it, a
1: unicorn right one <laughs> unique thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean I I called it a unicorn tax, a creature of no con- no known constitutional provenance that will never be seen again. Um
1: okay, so
0: but you know, Jonah, um, just to kind of uh, put the thesis of my book, Supreme Disorder Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court, right up front and, and how it's, its relevance to this moment isn't just because it's a book about judicial nominations in the Supreme Court. Uh, it's because where we've gotten to where we are with the Kabuki theater, with the, the toxic uh, nature of these debates, the uh, completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, parties talking past each other about what they want from judges, what we have is... Uh, so first of all, a very powerful Supreme Court, the centralization of power in Washington, in the federal government, and a skewing of that power within Washington. So Congress no longer uh, makes the political decisions, but punts it over to the uh, executive agencies, the the administrative uh, branch, uh, uh, as it were. This is something that Ben Sass talked about during the Kavanaugh hearings and on your podcast. Um, so we got this powerful court deciding these important issues every year uh, and at a time when the theories of constitutional statutory interpretation are completely divergent and incompatible, uh, and align with partisan preference at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the civil war. And so of course, when there's one of these precious vacancies over these powerful seats arise, it's going to be DEFCON one and a, and a fraught fight, um, to the death.
1: Um, I look, I'm, I'm, I should have asked you to my normal, what's your book about thing. But, um, I agree with you entirely on that, it is, it is one of my primary obsessions, um, and, uh, you know, when you give any institution the power of major political players, a president, you know, nine judges have more power than 100 senators in a lot of cases, and even more than one president in a lot of cases, and when they start doing politics, of course, people are going to start treating it like a political campaign because the stakes are just too high right i mean if 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 the supreme court weren't accruing to itself powers it should not have then people wouldn't care as much about the confirmation fight but um if you had to unwind that right i mean I, this this comes up a lot on this podcast it, you know it comes up a lot when i wake up hugging my knees in a motel room somewhere crying not sure why but what what do you actually do to to what are like three steps to roll that back? And don't tell me just get Congress to take its responsibilities seriously, because so far that doesn't seem to work very well. You
0: know, I, I have no magic bullets. I have no panaceas um, of all the various reforms that are proposed uh, term limits. I'm amenable to because it won't change the power dynamic and the importance of the issues on which the court is uh Ruling, or its ideological balance, for that matter, that's a function of presidential and Senate elections. Uh, but it will get rid of these morbid uh, health watches over octogenarian justices or politically timed retirements, uh, and have, kind of have more regularity to to when when vacancies arise. So that's that's great. But it would take a constitutional amendment, um, and if we had the political unity for that then uh, we wouldn't have some of the underlying issues. So, right. you know, we, we can talk about different reforms uh, uh, if you like, you know, a, a carousel of, of temporary justices, kind of rotating the lower court judges through the Supreme Court with no permanent justices that's been proposed, uh, uh, preventing the justices from writing separate opinions, going back to John Marshall's day and, and just have one opinion for the court. And if someone wants to dissent, you note the dissent, but no other opinions or anything like that. I mean, there's some First Amendment issues, there's like, well, what if a justice publishes his or her concurrence or dissent in the Atlantic or, you know, whatever. Um, It's kind of uh, interesting kind of half-baked ideas, if you will. We we can do a (laughs) a whole separate uh, episode (laughs) on half-baked legal ideas, if you like, but all of these sorts of things, whether they're good, bad, politically toxic or not, you know, the, the one proposal you might have heard, Pete Buttigieg adopted this in the primaries, where not only do we expand the court, which by itself doesn't have to be a politicized court packing or something. If we were designing a court from scratch, we might want more members and we we might want, you know, more circuits and one judge justice per circuit or something, you know, whatever, but we're not writing on a blank slate. So it's politically infeasible. But if you, you know, this idea where you have five justices appointed by Republicans, five by Democrats and the neutral five that have to be agreed upon uh, by unanimous vote of the so-called partisan justices. Well, how are you going to depoliticize the court by explicitly labeling two thirds of its members with a with a partisan label, so so again half baked. Um, yeah, so all of these. I,
1: listening to all these things, i mean, trying to. Interrupt, but all all these things, they're all arguments about the best way to clean up the sewage that is still pouring out of the pipe. Right? I mean, that, the that's exactly is the, it. The sewage is. I mean, the problem is is what the power we've invested in the court, and you can come up with some gimmicks. I mean, you know at first blush i was talking to will salton the other day he had you know you know he made a point which i think is has got some validity as a political matter which is that when you got rid of the filibuster for supreme court justices and let's not do the who started it go you know it's the big ass going back to some guy with a camel and that stuff but the
0: um actually actually guys with horses when the when the justices still rode circuit and people would decline their confirmations uh, the you know, declined to serve even after being confirmed communications, uh, were as they were. And sometimes a, a few people didn't find out, uh, that but they were they even nominated job. until after they were confirmed. And they said, <laughs> why would I want that job? I mean, they have to go in the Senate basement and they don't, it's not very prestigious. I'd rather stay in my law practice in Philadelphia or Boston or whatever.
1: But, uh, the, um, when you got rid of, when they got rid of the filibuster for Supreme court justices, which, as a political matter, I completely understood. And I blame Harry Reid more than I do Mitch McConnell, and yada, yada, yada. But um, it used to be that the incentive structure was crap. If we got to get a justice that can get past 60 votes, that means we're going to have to compromise with our, We're going to have to negotiate with ourselves first about who we can pick to get out there that could pass for 60 votes. And the problem, but. I get that point, And I kind of like the idea of incentive structures that moderate and, 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 and stabilize institutions. But that's basically a fix that perpetuates this idea that the Supreme court is this, you know, uh, de facto legislature regulatory agency. It doesn't change that underlying thing, which is an attitudinal thing as much as anything else. Right. I mean, how do you? If, if, uh, yes, if, if,
0: yes, yes, yes. The the the, the sewage pipe, uh, as it were, the problem is yeah. one uh, not of process or or structure, but of product. Uh, as to, to to use a nautical analogy, um, all these reform proposals are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, and the Titanic is the ship of state. It's uh, what the Supreme Court rules on. The concentration of power, as I said, the skewing of power, and so you know. My solution uh, is is not an overnight one, nor is it an easy one. It's to rebalance our constitutional order uh, because the court is and the judiciary is part and parcel of its own self-corruption to allow the, the government to grow and to skew in, in, in such ways as to make the court uh, to aggrandize the, the court itself. And so the only way to make these uh, to, to turn down the heat on these fights is to uh, push power back down to the states and the people and localities and rearrange it within Washington, not kind of implore Congress to take back its power, but to actually have court decisions saying no, 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 you're delegating the legislative power. We're not gonna let you do that. So you know, all, each of the branches is to blame uh, for where we are uh, in this constitutional corruption, and it's taken decades. This does not start with uh, Harry Reid or, or Clarence Thomas, with Joe Biden having those hearings or Ted Kennedy demagoguing uh, Robert Bork. Again, it, it, it's it's much earlier. Um, but, but it's, yeah, the, the problem is fundamental. It's not just addressing these symptoms and, and gimmicks is a good way, uh, of, of putting it. And by the way, I'll correct one thing that you said, uh, the filibuster actually hasn't played that big a role in terms of the political considerations of senators nominating presidents. Uh, uh sure. They have to, uh, uh, make sure before they make a nomination that, that there's senatorial support, which didn't always mean making sure that there's a, a majority of your own party. Although that's, very important uh, when there's united government, Senate and White House uh, controlled by the same party. Confirmation rates about 90 percent. When it's divided, it's less than 60 percent. And that's even more stark in presidential election years. But it was also placating factions within your party, regionalism, uh, religion at times, all these uh, other sorts of considerations. And not necessarily to get to 60. It was to get to 50. You need to get the right. the, the judges confirmed or a majority. The majority, like half plus one. We've had Stanley Matthews was confirmed 24, 23, for example. Uh, Love that. Guy. We had uh, Sam Alito confirmed 58 42, Thomas 52 48. They could have been filibustered. In fact, John Kerry from the slopes of Davos, when Alito came up, uh, did say, Je voudrais un filibustier, <laughs> uh, but that only got, I think, 20, 24 other votes, uh, including all the politically active Democratic senators, Schumer, Clinton, Obama, Biden, were, were all uh, with him on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Gorsuch was the one and only partisan filibuster of a supreme court uh, uh justice so it's not quite getting to the magic 60 and if we could just have a deus ex to reinstate the filibuster that would solve uh all our problems again that's another one of these symptoms
1: yeah no that's 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 fair and i appreciate the correction you're right i i do think i mean there was i guess salatin's point was that it was sort of a that well we can I will, i'll revisit the tape and we will revisit this issue Um, and I will have to apologize because my recall isn't what it would normally be because I'm recording this so early in the morning and I haven't had enough coffee and I haven't had a cigar, but that may be a great reason why I should start chewing some gum from Lucy. Okay. So, you know, I may have mentioned from time to time that I smoke cigars. Um, I, uh, like cigars. I will continue to smoke cigars, but I should definitely smoke fewer cigars. I think everybody can agree on that. And, um, except maybe the cigar companies. And, um, but I've gotten myself into this situation where when I'm on a deadline, I kind of need the nicotine to, uh, focus my, uh, diminished capacity brain, um, to work at hand. And that's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why I've become more and more interested in nicotine gum, specifically Lucy. Lucy, which is also the name of my daughter dismissed as coincidence Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative research and developed for 3 years to be made for people not patients Lucy has created a nicotine gum with 4 milligrams of sweet sweet nicotine that comes in 3 flavors wintergreen cinnamon and pomegranate hopefully a fourth flavor just called vengeance will be coming soon but I don't know about that Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor each and every flavor actually tastes great and it's convenient and discreet products can be enjoyed anywhere on flights at work on the go or even in the gym um, I've tried I've tried Lucy you do get that nicotine hit it's it's you know, the problem for me is I'm, I have this Pavlovian thing about cigars, but I think it's breakable because the, the key is nicotine, um, which my brain so desperately craves at times. Um, and so I'm really heartened by this and, uh, I've, uh, I'm going to keep using it for a while and I'll let you know more as I do it. But so far I'm, I'm pretty impressed. So it's 2020, get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, but keep your cigars, just save them for special occasions and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple that you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. Remnant listeners can go to Lucy.co Did you hear me, people? Co, not .com, Lucy.co C-O and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code DINGO at checkout. That's how you remember. lucy.co, promo code DINGO. Also, I have to give you this disclaimer because lawyers rule the world. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So that's lucy.co, and be sure to use that promo code, Dingo. So I want to get to this sort of cultural values, constitutional thing um, a little bit. I think we can both agree, but I'm open to correction, that there is a constitutional prohibition on uh, having a religious test for appointees, right? Um, That said, let's say the democrats could get enough votes largely because they were bigoted against catholics um and even though they may not have all of them may not have said it in public it was pretty clear that they were voting against her because she was catholic now i agree this is a silly hypothetical when like six out of six of the supreme court justices are are catholics but for the sake of argument that would be unconstitutional in spirit I could actually make the case that it's unconstitutional in law, but the Supreme Court would never review such a thing, right? I mean, that is, there are things that it can be unconstitutional that the Supreme Court will never touch. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think it would be seen as a political question. The, so the only person who would even have standing to bring such a suit would be the, the nominee who gets rejected, although... It, you know, if the Democrats did that, this is positing that they have a majority. They probably just wouldn't bring it to a vote. And then there's no actual action uh, even to review if a court wanted to review it in the first place. So
1: right. I I, I, I'm not asking you to go to super lawyer on me. My point here is that, you know, for, for example. I thought it was incredibly stupid and wrong, but a lot of the president's lawyers were claiming that the impeachment case against Donald Trump was unconstitutional. Um, the yeah, that's uh, a
0: misnomer. Impeachment can't be unconstitutional. There, there are no standards. It's you know the Senate imputes uh, defines high crime and misdemeanor as it will and makes a political judgment on it.
1: Right. Or okay, I, I'm going to try this a third way. There are many people who uh, would say, have have argued to me that the um, that whatever the declaration of war power is or isn't and how it, it's supposed to work, the Supreme Court would never. Stop a sitting president from declaring, from sending troops someplace, even though there are constitutional values at work there. I, my only point here is that it is, I think, one of the reasons why we're in the mess that we're in that you're describing in your book is that we have convinced ourselves that the only institution that is supposed to care about constitutionality is the Supreme Court itself. And it's not just that it's the, it's the decider of last resort, which I think is a fair way to describe it in most cases, but it's that the only decider. So when George W. Bush signs campaign finance law, he says, I think some of it's unconstitutional. I'll let the court decide all of that. That is a violation of the president's oath. It
0: used that, to be. That, that's right. I was going to bring up that example. That That's what came to mind, right? As you were talking about that, you're absolutely right about this. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's, in that episode it was congress first right you know the it, it debate in congress over over mccain feingold over the 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 bicra bipartisan campaign reform act uh and these issues came up and they said oh well, well you know we'll 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 let the president figure it out we'll let the court figure it out and then george w bush said the same thing that's right that is a violation of their oaths and it's it's remarkable if you go to the congressional record the uh the transcripts of the debates uh in the 19th century so much of it was whether a particular action was constitutional or not right uh, and that's why the Supreme Court didn't have to decide quite as many things, uh, quite as many uh, big constitutional clashes as, as it seemingly has had to do the last few decades.
1: I mean, my, my understanding, I keep meaning to look up for the quotes on this, but there used to be a fairly widely used uh, parliamentary procedure where you could kill legislation by simply questioning the constitutionality of the legislation. I'm sure that's still on the books, but it's not used anymore. And it used to be like, debating some railroad thing and someone rises and says i question the constitutionality of this and they debate about the constitutionality of it and if they decide it's unconstitutional that kills the legislation and they don't proceed that's a better way to run run these yeah things. Ab-
0: absolutely <laughs> rather than the nancy pelosi response of are you serious because uh only the you know only the scoundrel who doesn't have any good policy arguments to make will, will raise a, a constitutional objection
1: um and so i guess that's the I mean, the, going back to the sewage pipe, that's the real problem. Is that the Constitution isn't in our hearts all along, right? If if everybody was at, if everybody really really cared about constitutional principles, the Supreme Court would be like the Maytag repairman and see very few cases because they would get stopped along the way. But when it's just the thing downhill that you can just chuck all your trash and it ends up sliding down there and they take care of it. Th- it's not in some ways it's not their fault at this point that they're deciding all this stuff because so that's how we want it now
0: that's uh that's true I mean it's a complicated uh, it's a complicated nut to crack uh, civic education is a part of this the court letting uh, FDR get away with implicitly amending the Constitution to grow the government and the New Deal. the the mythical switch in time that saved nine which wasn't actually uh well it was a switch by Justice Roberts and other justice Roberts Owen Roberts but it wasn't due to FDR's uh, court packing pressure. He was already moving in that direction. Um, But we can't overstate it. I mean, the the Supreme Court has made and was called upon to make pivotal constitutional calls in our history, whether Marbury versus Madison uh, in the very early days, the power of judicial review, whether uh, McCullough versus Maryland and the necessary and proper clause in terms of uh, what sorts of, you know, the scope of federal power in the nascent republic. Dred Scott and hoping to solve the slavery question judicially uh reconstruction for that matter and effectively eviscerating the 14th amendment's promise to protect against uh constitutional violation by the states uh after the civil war um so it's not just you know i i like to point to the the root of our problem and that dynamic that i identified with the divergent theory and the uh uh, partisan preference for ideologically sorted parties i i often date that to 1937 and you know the, the the new deal court uh but there are you know other moments in our history where obviously uh, pivotal moments in the, the court weighing in in a way that uh displeases uh,
1: half the country um going back to the coney barrett hearings um i heard a lot of scary 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 stories from democrats right and um one of the exchanges i think with um skeletor uh max uh, blumenthal whatever that guy's name is um was um an amazing no one has done a cartoon of blumenthal as skeletor and and barrett as she but that's you know I, one day i'll have i
0: i just watched uh, on netflix they have the toys that made us series about like the history of yeah. Masters of the universe, GI Joe, Barbie, all these, uh, you know, cool toys from, from the eighties that that wow. I grew up with. It might be, you know, you were probably too old up, to be playing with, you that grew up with a lot of Barbies. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, that, that, <laughs> that
0: you, you should, you should go on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Did, did Blumenthal feed you that question? That was good.
1: Um, all right. So, um, uh, I don't want to talk about your preferences with Barbies. You know, the <laughs> preference now is not a thing, right. Uh, but, Oh, the, the the exchange I think it was between them was on Griswold View, Connecticut and all that kind of thing. And at some point Barrett said... Not a reference
0: of, to Chevy Chase.
1: That's right. Uh, um, uh, she she said something along the lines, I and I'm gross, grossly paraphrasing. Uh, I think it's kind of weird that people would be scared that I'm sitting here um, and that you think I'm going to uh, be part of an effort to... Criminalize birth control. And Blumenthal said something like, and again, I think it was Blumenthal, you'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> and so, I, I, for those who don't know, Griswold v. Connecticut was this thing that they kind of hung around Bork's head because Bork actually had a unpopular position on it. And it basically has to do with essentially sexual privacy, reproduction stuff. You can explain it. But I'm assuming you don't think there's any chance that gets overturned. What of the, among the, among of all the Medusa's heads that the Democrats keep pulling out of their gunny sacks on all this stuff, what do you think in the if she's appointed if she's confirmed, what do you think their their fears are most well grounded on? Um is it overturning ACA? Is it um uh Obergefell? What, you know, where 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 are they right to be freaked out? But on their well, of, terms, of, not of your the- terms.
0: Right. Of the issues that were actually raised during the hearing, probably Second Amendment stuff, uh, because the court, uh, it's been 12 years since uh, District of Columbia versus Heller found an individual right to keep and bear arms, and the court has not fleshed out that right. And so you have uh, massive civil disobedience by judges in uh, circuits that uh, have a lot of uh, gun regulations and restrictions that, uh, you know, there's massive disagreement about even not even what the result should be and what kind of regulations are constitutional, but what uh, interpretive rubric to apply to evaluate these sorts of questions. And the Supreme Court took one of these cases finally once Kavanaugh joined the court replacing the Squishy Kennedy, but then that case got mooted out this past term. And then the court declined to take up uh, petitions on every which way kind of uh, challenge on carry rules and magazine capacity and every different kind of thing, because John Roberts, presumably, this is the scuttlebutt from Joan Biskupic's reporting, that he uh, advised his colleagues that he wasn't necessarily a sure vote on this stuff. Well, uh, if Barrett becomes a a justice, then he becomes a superfluous man in the sixth, not the fifth vote, Mm -hmm. uh, and she is likely to take uh, that part of the Constitution uh, seriously. But, you know, this, this, this other stuff, you know, at the margins, uh, abortion regulations or restrictions that would otherwise be invalidated will now be upheld, uh, but uh, she would not be the fifth vote to invalidate Roe v. Wade. It takes us a while to get there. But your mentioning of Griswold, I think, is important for another reason, uh, and that's because, not because birth control is in, in threat. And by the way, Griswold is where that uh, phrase that will live in infamy uh, penumbras and emanations comes from. That's not from Roe v. Wade. That mm-hmm. sexual privacy, the, the justification for, for you know sexual or other privacy uh, comes from the Griswold case, where rather than basing a right in an interpretation of the Ninth Amendment, the idea that we don't spell out all of the rights that we have in the Constitution, or the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, you know, going back to the 1868 debates and uh, the privacy of hearth and home and all of these sorts of things. No, instead it's like well, you kind of look between, you tilt the Constitution sideways, and it's, you know, it's been a while since I took physics in high school, but the, the you know, the lights, they emanate, and then when the emanations overlap, there's the penumbras, and in those penumbras are hidden these other rights. You know, that's, that's poppycock to, uh, you know, you might have to bleep that out, but anyway, I feel strongly about this. Uh, but the question is, which of these various cases is, quote-unquote, super precedent? Because Barrett actually had written an article about precedent and super precedent, and she explained um, that uh, super precedent is not some you know I feel that this is a really really important case, and so I'm determining that I anoint the super precedent. No, it's uh, it's cases that simply are so there's no debate over them over their propriety. Marbury versus Madison, uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, people are, Democrats pretend to be up in arms that Barrett or others don't call Roe v. Wade a super precedent. Well, as a very basic empirical matter, uh, if, if there's an issue, if there's a legal issue that is in debate and continues to be hotly disputed, it's the constitutionality of uh, the abortion right. Uh, and so, just as an empirical matter, not whether something's right or not or what it should be, but just as an empirical matter, that is not uh, a super precedent. Griswold, I think, does approach becoming one. Uh, just because of the the right to privacy can be affirmed in 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 various other ways, but because it's so closely connected to uh, Roe, that's why she says it, you know well, it can't be considered that way. And I'm not going to judge it,
1: right? So you, I mean, wherever you come down on the abortion question, there were ways to get to some of the same results as Roe without going through the emanations and penumbra route, right? I mean, it seems to me that correct or not, a reasonable person could argue that a right to privacy is obviously implicit in the constitution. When you're talking about your personal papers and fourth amendment and, 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 um, all that, uh, for, for purposes of Griswold.
0: Yes. Yeah. Roe gets more complicated because at a certain point, there's another, uh, there's another life, uh, that has its own rights and whether that's, at conception, birth, quickening, soulment or any other, you know, second trimester, it's, you know, that's not a legal question. That's a, a philosophical, theological, scientific, you know, whatever. Uh, and that's why, you know, none other than uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, uh, said that the court made a hash of Roe v. Wade. And it, it's kind of funny, when she was up for her Supreme Court nomination in 1993, the uh, the pro-choice groups were, were wary uh, because she had given this speech saying that the court had made a hash and uh, short-circuited the political debate and just, you know, did all the things where she was accurately describing where we were then, where we still are uh, because of the court's action. Uh, But, you know, kind of amazing that 30 years later that anyone questioned uh, her pro-choice bona fides. But uh, yeah, that that one case has really warped our
1: uh, our legal discussion. So I want to make, I'm going to, you know, I know that listeners are used to me being so even handed and, uh, unbiased and everything. And people are always guessing what my real position is on things. But, um, uh, couldn't you make the argument? Let's just say, I I don't want, you don't, I don't think you want right wing judicial activism. I mean, we can have a conversation about judicial engagement and all of that stuff in a second, but like, we don't want right. We don't want the Supreme court writing right wing laws either and I, and I understand that it depends what we mean by right wing and all the rest but i would be kind of happy to have a thoroughly conservative supreme court that just essentially minded its own business except for like waterways regulation and interesting little commerce clause kind of things and just stayed silent on most issues in american life and it would be interesting to me to see what effect that would have on american politics if you just knew it's sort of like if you know that you can't run to daddy to fix your arguments with you uh fix you know to fix your interpersonal conflicts with somebody what effect does that have on the political process and the kind of laws that we write do you have a theory about let's just say for the sake of argument that the Supreme Court essentially shuts down on all cultural war issues and just says, you guys figure it out, right? Sort of Oliver Wendell Holmes, the way he should have been, not the way he really was. Um, how does that change how we actually write laws and conduct public affairs? Do you have a theory about where I go?
0: I mean, it would mean that different states would have different, uh, you'd have different rights in different states, uh, which is only good up to a point. Because I'm a strong believer in all of the Constitution. I mean, I'm, I'm an originalist in full in the sense that I have a strong conception of the 14th Amendment. I think it's correct that we protect uh, at a federal level, including going to federal court, uh, when you have a claim that your state or locality is violating your your constitutionally protected uh, individual rights. So, you know, I was describing a dynamic. You know, how to when you asked me how to unwind this, and I talked about well, rebalancing. You know, getting the administrative state, you know, back into Congress and and federalism to push back those issues. But that's a matter of of power in terms of rights claims. Um, you know, you can't avoid people saying, well, you know, he's taking away my guns, or or you know, this privacy right, or you know, my 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 right to walk down the right side of the street while wearing a green hat. Um, you know, valid claims for courts to adjudicate. I don't think you can just get the court out of the business of enforcing uh, those types of claims, but that's okay in the sense that at that point we get back to arguing not about activism versus restraint, which is a phony war. I don't care about judicial modes. I care about whether judges' uh, interpretive theories are correct. So let's just debate the interpretive theory. What is your theory of which unenumerated rights, rights not listed in the Bill of Rights, are protected? Let's debate that. And what kind of judge do you want to enforce those kinds of rights? So, yeah, I mean, it would be great if um, uh, the Supreme Court did not uh, have to decide these things. Uh, to, but again, to a point, because if states truly are oppressing people's rights to uh, earn a living or uh, hang on to their property, or you know, with you know, not not have it taken without just just compensation, all of these sorts of things, um, you know, the, you
1: you can't avoid it. Um, I mean, you'd still have lower courts, you'd still have state courts. I mean, my only point is, is that it seems to me that that the, as long as the magnet of this rim court is next to the compass, it's going to divert people's direction and attention in ways that are unhealthy for our domestic politics. And I'm not for getting rid of the Supreme Court. I'm not for, you know, people being going to have Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that you know, the thing um, is,
0: it's it's politics all the way down in the sense that, OK, the Supreme Court's not ruling on those uh, abortion claims or, or gun claims or what have you. But then, OK, the uh, the Third Circuit is and all of a sudden we're going to have uh, huge debates over the next nominee to the Third Circuit, you know, which only residents of Pennsylvania and, and Delaware uh, and New Jersey are going to care about. But uh, but still, well, actually, the, na- the nation will care about it because if it's a question of abortion, then the national groups are, are going to be involved in that fight because they don't want to. Give up that territory of New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Delaware. So, um, you know, it would be nice to, to, to have that, but there is no deus ex machina. I mean, this is, as Jefferson called it, a parchment barrier. And if the people don't want to enforce it, the people don't care about it, then, uh, you know, that, you know, we can have a perfect, just a perfect constitution updated as necessary for Madison's short sights to uh, 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 short sightedness 200 years later. In fact, the National Constitution Center now has a drafting project. I was the captain of Team Liberty and kind <laughs> of, you know, updating the, the, the constitution. There's also a team progressive. The conservatives are still late. They still haven't submitted their constitution. The running gag is that, well, they're actually submitting an unwritten constitution so they've been done the whole time. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, our conceit is, well, you just add to the end of every provision and we mean it and, and <laughs> call it a day. And that, that's mostly what we did. Um,
1: well, that's interesting. And uh, I want to hear more about that. But first I want to tell you about something interesting that you might want to hear more about. And that's the Bradley Foundation Speaker Series. Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People, as I've just talked about before, is a new Bradley Speaker Series that offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit Bradley, that's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y, FDN as an abbreviation for foundation.org slash Liberty to watch their most recent video episode on the Electoral College featuring Trent England, which sounds like a really quaint, lovely lakeside village, but it's actually a person. England is the founder and executive director of Save Our States, a group dedicated to educating Americans about the Electoral College and defending it from the national popular vote campaign. In this episode, Trent England explains the history of the Electoral College, how it works, and what happens if the rules change. The discussion is an insightful analysis of the many merits to the way the president is elected. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly. So go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank the Bradley Foundation Speaker Series for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right. So this this thing you did for the National Constitution Center. Um. Uh, w- I'm curious for the liberals. So you you said you were, you were on Team Liberty. I assume that means Team Libertarian. Right. Thing, right. Team Progressive? What was the Team Progressive called? Uh, team Progressive. Yeah, okay. They, they're, they're very
0: creative at the NCC.
1: Um, so what 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 does their con- their modern, hip, now-happening constitution look like? Is it a lot of positive liberty stuff? You get this, you get that, look under your seats, everybody. It's like Oprah constitution?
0: So it's funny, uh, they had to have, you know, first of all, they they, they were a little bit late because they ran into trouble. They wanted to have like 23 people on their team to maintain perfect representativeness and all this stuff. It's supposed to be three member teams. And so it (laughs) took them a while to, you know, get everybody's views known and properly included and represented and, and all this sort of thing. And I guess they couldn't fully agree on all the positive rights, and they they didn't have enough time to enumerate every little thing they wanted the government to grant you. So there's very little uh, additional positive right granting. There's no you know FDR second Bill of Rights kind of kind of thing, which is surprising. Uh, so they focused on uh, democratic rights and and voting and uh, all of these sorts of things. You know, getting uh, you know uh, an amendment to get rid of. Uh, well, not an amendment, a, a provision of this new constitution to get rid of uh, campaign finance and dark money and uh, the right mm. to vote and, and all of these sorts of things, which is bizarre because, you know, I would have thought their concern is that the majority oppresses the minority in, in all sorts of ways. Um, but that's, that's where their focus was. It's, um, uh, you know, a, 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 they, they, their, their primary values are democracy and equality uh and that's that's where they ended up
1: okay so i'm curious i mean i i know we got to run really soon but um because this and i'm sorry that the conservatives haven't provided their constitution yet kind of curious who the conservatives are but um
0: i I know who they are it's it's elon worman uh michael mcconnell and
1: robbie george okay so good decent people all right yeah um uh but it does. It, it points to a question I wanted to ask you earlier. You're a libertarian guy. You're Cato, classical political. liberal. I know, I know, I know. But you're, I'm all,
0: I'm all about the fusionism. See, I, I listen to your podcast religiously, so I'm, I'm all about that kind of discussion. I, I,
1: I, I was going to say you're, you're, uh, you're one of the um, few other members of Team Fusionism. Um, so the coalitions that are behind various Supreme Court picks on the right. You know, there's the textualists, there's the originalists, the social cons like them for this reason, the libertarians or the free market guys like them for that reason. Where are your flashpoints? Where do you think that the conservative guys or gals um, start bumping up against um, your libertoidness and make you feel un- uncomfortable or unsafe. I mean, where 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 do the those tectonic plates grind together for you in all of these debates?
0: Sure. Um well, I mean, just look at Amy Coney Barrett in a in a section of her writing that uh actually came up in the hearings a fair bit, her critique of Randy Barnett's book, uh, Our Republican Constitution. Where Not where she, you know, what came up was that she criticized John Roberts' opinion in NFIB as going beyond where it was plausible to construe the unicorn rutabaga mandate as a tax, right? Uh, Right. But uh, what grinds my gears, to answer your question, is when she uh, criticizes Randy for wanting judges to uh, evaluate uh, economic regulation. Um, This is what lawyers know as the rational basis test um, that, uh, judges will defer to economic regulations, uh, unless they're so completely outlandish as, you know, not to pass uh, any sort of constitutional smell test. Uh, she's, you know, Randy and other, you know, judicial engagement, some people call this, you mentioned that earlier, mm-hmm. but just, uh, I, I just say, you know, the government has to, has to be the one to bear the burden of justifying its restrictions of my liberty rather than me saying, you know, uh, having to bring the, the the case in chief as, as it were. And, and Barrett said, well, you know, who are judges to second guess or to get in the minds of legislators and really know whether their justification is a a good one or not, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, actually for health and safety or just a protectionist measure to their, to the, the industry that supports their party or, or, or something like that. And I say, well, that's what we, what you, what we pay you for. And so that's one other way that in which she is very much like Scalia Scalia also um, you know, was effectively made his peace with, uh, with the New Deal, uh, with uh, economic regulations, you know, against Lochner. Lochner is as bad as, as uh, Korematsu or Dred Scott, these anti-cannons. Uh, and that's, I think, because a lot of people, a lot of lawyers think that Lochner or Lochnerism, as sometimes gets called, uh, is a judge substituting their policy views for uh, the legislature. And that's not that at all. Uh, it's it's finding an un, unenumerated right to economic liberty, freedom of contract, right to earn a living, all those sorts of things, uh, and so th- that's what where I I often uh, part ways with a lot of uh, originalists or uh, Republican appointees. Not not all, you know. Some are better. You know, some have a uh, a lower bar or a higher bar that the government needs to clear, state or federal, uh, in in uh, in passing these regulations.
1: Um. I know we only have a couple minutes left, but I mentioned this on the podcast earlier this week. Uh, This is not Amy Coney Barrett's fault at all. Um, It's not her ballywick. Um, But the marketing of these justices, getting back to some of the stuff in your book, um, Republicans basically have stolen a lot of pages from Democrats about what sells a nominee And, um, whether it's identity politics, you know, rags to riches stories and all these kinds of things. And in the case of Amy Coney Barrett, they're, they're running these ads with this former clerk and law student who's blind and she seems very impressive and all that, but she has this stuff about how Barrett has the empathy that we want on the court. I've been writing for years how, you know, because that's what Obama's argument was, it was basically that the living constitution is embodied and powered by judicial empathy. And the whole reason why justice is supposed to be blind and the oath of the office is you've you no know, fear nor favor towards rich nor poor and all that kind of stuff is you just follow the law. Does it bother you that, that, that the right, throws out a lot of its actual arguments what the court is for in order to get these people on the court
0: well there's a difference between making legal arguments and having a pr campaign um so uh, you know at the at the judiciary committee uh you you know you, you hear mostly about how she's a good lawyer and a, and a well-rounded life you try to humanize the person it's not you know this person has empathy and therefore confirm them uh, uh, quite so much uh but you know, given the, the way, the nature of, of, of the beast uh, in, in modern times, you have these outside groups running ads to, uh, to you know, uh, scare or assuage uh, voters, as it were, who will then pressure their their senators. Uh, and this blind uh, Supreme, the first blind Supreme Court clerk, who was a student of uh, of uh, Amy Barrett's, uh, her name is Laura Wolk. I've got to know her a little bit. Uh, I think they should come out with the slogan, get woke, not woke." <laughs> I mean, that uh, that's just some free advice to the to the political operatives well
1: i mean i bring it up not just because it, it vexes and annoys me but because if we're talking about changing the habits of the heart and explaining to people what the role of the court is and isn't and how we should think about the constitution buying into the argument for sales purposes which i totally understand in the heat of a political battle that what we really need on the court is someone who feels our pain just contributes to the very problems that we started this conversation talking about. I'm not saying that it's not necessary. It may be a small price to pay to get the court properly oriented or get your team a win and all that kind of thing. But the fact that that's the argument you need to use to sell even a conservative Supreme Court justice to the American people shows how far the American people are from rightly understanding what the role of the courts in the Constitution is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair enough.. Um, Ilya, we will have you back. I know this is you were very gracious to agree to do this um very early because um
0: I have two little kids. It's not so early for me.
1: You were but I know, and you're a and you're a servant of the people, and the people demanded more Shapiro as 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 you keep noting on Twitter. So you you, you should watch
0: that. the Shapiro crossover episode when I went on Ben Shapiro's uh podcast a few weeks ago.
1: Wow, Shapiro v Shapiro. Yeah. Um it's 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 sort of the uh Borscht belt version of Kramer versus Kramer. um and uh um anyway hope to have you back thanks for being on here i said i would get you out by 45 past the hour and it's 43 so uh shapiro thanks for coming on all right so i i apologize for the semi-abbreviated i mean i know for like normal podcasts this was a lengthy and in-depth discussion but we we really like to luxuriate and marinate in the relevant constitutionals and, and legal issues and um i had more stuff in my head but my brain wasn't completely working yet um i kind of feel like homer simpson when he says uh pass me thing f- scoop food with and marge says you mean a spoon homie um so anyway my words are not uh, quite up to speed yet but they'll get there um but it's always good to have Ilya Shapiro back on. I am sure we left out many pressing constitutional issues and whatnot. I'll try to address some of them if you tell me what they were uh, in the solo remnant tomorrow, which uh, you, you know people still like listening to for reasons that uh, defy Earth logic. And um, um, please check out the remnant. I mean, please check out the dispatch if you can. Um, we got a really great response from the 30, 30 day free trial offer. Um, but we would love still to keep growing and growing and growing. And we're going, we're doing everything we can to do that. And, uh, you guys are crucial to all of that. So we appreciate the support. We appreciate the help. Um, but we want to be legion. So, um, sign up, give us a try if you can. And, uh, with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.